Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke 14. As has been said, my name is Stephen. I think I, I know most, if not all of you. We're going to continue uh, where, where Drew left off last week in Luke. Uh, and Jesus was at a very awkward banquet, uh, to say the least. <laughs> You know, he'd been invited to dine at the house of the Pharisees, and, and Jesus had challenged the Pharisees on a number of things. You know, mainly their, their legalism, their lack of compassion, uh, their desire for worldly glory and honor. I think there's a bit of an echo here. Uh, I think you could put the mic closer to you. Closer to me. That's counterintuitive. Is that better? Ah, ah, all right. <laughs> But yeah, Jesus was not pulling his punches here. Uh, and, you know, in the middle of a dinner party, uh, telling these things openly to your host and all the rest of the people gathered would create some tension. Uh, but Jesus is not one to shy away from tension. And Drew did a great job, uh, you know, expounding on this all last week. Uh, but I know what we were all thinking after that sermon. That is, man, I wish Drew would talk more about banquets. <laughs> Well, you are in luck, because we are going to be talking about two more banquets this week. For a total of three banquets, banquet fans can rejoice. Uh, And those who have looked ahead, we're going to be talking about the parable of the great banquet. Uh, And to do that, we're going to back up a little bit and recover some of the ground that we covered last week. Uh, And starting in Luke 14, 12, it says... Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, lame, and the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. One of those at the table with him heard this. He said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And we have this interesting interjection here. You know, Jesus is increasing the tension. He's going after their hearts. And then this guy, I love this guy. He kind of just chimes in. Blessed is the man who eats at the kingdom of God. I don't really know why he does this. You know, it could just be that he's, like, trying to diffuse the situation. He's like, let's just talk about something we can all agree on. Maybe he's a little bit sloshed on Pharisee wine, and he's like, ah, word association, banquet. I know a banquet. Let me talk about this banquet. Maybe he's just, you know, throwing something out there for Jesus uh, to comment on and see what he thinks about this. And it's interesting because he actually brings up something that's going to be very important to our story, important for our purposes today. And he's brought up the feast in the kingdom of God, which is one of the banquets that we're going to be talking about today. And he brings up this feast, and this is something that they all would have known about. This is something they they would have been familiar with, this idea of the great banquet at the end of times. And this is actually a story that's originally told in Isaiah 25. And this story of the great banquet is about this moment at the end of times when God will rectify all wrongs. 
Uh, and the story goes that God gathers all people to him, Jews and Gentiles alike on this mountainside, and prepares this great banquet. And it says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And in this telling, it, this is quite a beautiful story of reconciliation, of all peoples being brought together and kind of blessed equally with this, this destruction of death, this wiping of tears from every eyes. I love this idea that on the mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations, just kind of getting rid of the divisions, getting rid of the things that separate us, that, that cloud us, bringing people together to be equally blessed. And this was written a few hundred years before Jesus' time. But what had happened between the writing of this in Isaiah and Jesus was there were a few hundred years of some pretty bad things that happened in Israel. And Israel, over and over again, was just kind of run over by other nations. They were enslaved, they were carted off, their people were killed, their lands ravaged, and they were now under the occupying force of a foreign nation who worshipped many gods, you know, doing things that were anathema to, to Jewish culture and religious identity at the time. You know, they had, they had to endure their temples, be, their temple being desecrated, their holy things uh, being destroyed. And that created some hard feelings over the years, quite understandably. I think that we, we don't quite, uh, as a nation, as Americans, understand, I think, the, the, the cultural bitterness that would have been in the memory of these people. You know, just like the seething hate and resentment you would have had about these things, these injustices that had been done to you. And because of those years, suddenly th this idea of unity at the end of times and this idea of justice being a reconciliation between all people started to get a little less popular. Uh, you know, suddenly it didn't really seem all that great to be spending like the rest of eternity with all these Gentiles who had like desecrated your t temples and like killed your ancestors. Didn't seem so fun anymore. And it's interesting because we actually see in the cultural writings at the time, this story begin to get twisted. And there, there's an expanded version of the Bible that was being written in the local uh, dialect Aramaic at the time called the Targum. And it's interesting because we can kind of get a good idea of what the mindset was and the thinking of the people at the time was uh, by reading this expanded translation. Yeah. And we can see here... This story was changed. And it says, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples in this mountain a meal. And although they supposed it is an honor, it will be a shame for them. And great plagues, plagues from which they will be unable to escape. Plagues whereby they will come to their end. And there's another version uh, in, in the book of Enoch, which is kind of like an extra biblical writing, uh, where the angel of death is at the banquet. And just like slaughters all the Gentiles and like the believers have to like wade through the blood and guts to like get to the actual banquet and be with the Messiah at the end of times. Yeah. And it's so fascinating to look at how they took 
this original idea of like this reconciling event and this unity and they overlaid their desires onto it. And they were like, this makes a lot more sense to us. Surely this is the character of God. This is the retribution that will make things right in the end. And when this man interjects here and says, blessed is the man who will be at the feast in the kingdom of God. This is probably what he's talking about. You know, and this, this idea of resentment and division is what he's talking about here. And Jesus, knowing all this, it's funny because like he, he could have quite benignly just been like, yeah, you know, everyone is going to be blessed who's there. And not really address this, but Jesus really leans into the moment here. Because he knows what they're thinking, and he knows that the Pharisees think that that feast is going to be a day of reckoning where they'll be on top, everyone else will be lowered. And Jesus plays into its expectations a bit. He's like, okay, you want to talk about that? Let's talk about that. And he starts out this story. And in verse 15, uh, or in verse 16, says, Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he said to his servant, tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. And the master told the servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in, so my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. And Jesus directly plays in these expectations, and he starts his story. And, you know, it, it says, a certain man was preparing a banquet. And this had already been brought up, but this would have made a light go off in everyone's head. Like, ah, yes, I know where this story goes. I uh, would have been much like Marty McFly, you know, like, I, I, I've seen this one. He, uh, you know, this is, an, another, this is our second Back to the Future reference in two weeks. So whoever's preaching next week, this is a challenge. Let's keep this going. But Martin McFly goes back in time and sees like a TV show that he's seen on rerun. He's like, oh, I know this one. And the kid's like, no, you don't. This is a new episode. But anyway, he would have, they would have known what Jesus was talking about here. And they would have had expectations of what that meant. And Jesus starts this story and they're like, ah, yes, end times. It's going to be a banquet. We'll be there. Gentiles will be there. They're going to get destroyed. We're going to be on top. But very quickly, the story takes a left turn. Very quickly, things start to go awry. And let's take a look at what happens here. And I think if you're like me, you know, if you've been around church for a while, this passage is probably familiar, but I think at first glance, uh, it's a bit strange. Because I think, like, when I first read this passage, it it seems like the host kind of gives, like, an outsized reaction to what's happening. And it's like, you know, these, these seem like pretty okay excuses, I guess. It, it just seems like, not a big deal, why are you so angry? But I think if we really wait into the cultural milieu of the time, it makes a little bit more sense. And I think if we question these excuses a little bit more, uh, we begin to really see the heart of these people. And we have this first guy, 
Uh, first of all, let me clarify that this was not the first invitation that these guys had. This was not like a, hey, I'm having a party. Can you come over right now? And people are like, no, I'm not prepared for this. They would have, this would have been the second invitation. They would have already gotten like the save the date, the RSVP, you know, the, 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 uh, the first invitation. They would have been able to clear the schedules. They are being asked to come because they already said that they would be there. Right. You know, weeks, months in advance. And so when the servant comes, he comes and says, hey, like you said you would come. It's actually ready right now. So you can go ahead and come as you said. Then we have this first guy and he says, ah, I just bought a piece of land. I've got to go look at it. Which, if we really think about it, doesn't make any sense. Like, which of us buys a house sight unseen? And especially at the time, like, there's not, like, return policies or anything like that. And you're probably spending your life savings on this field. Like, you go, you check that out. You look at it. You're like, all right, where's the sun hit it at what time of day and what time of year? What's the climate like? What's, what, how does the rainfall here? What's the drainage like? Are we in a floodplain? What's the soil like? Is it rocky? You go out and you inspect that over and over and repeatedly. You, you, you check their records of what the yield has been in years past. You don't sign that contract until you know exactly what you're getting. So this guy's saying, like, I just bought a field and I have to go look at it for the first time. Zero, zero percent sense. Zero percent. Next guy. Ah, just bought a yoke of oxen. Imagine getting a car sight unseen. You take it out for a test drive. You, you take it out in the open road. You put the gas pedal down. See if it like, you know, the, the engine explodes. You test the brakes. You're making sure that you're not getting a lemon here. Same with oxen. You'd be out there testing them, seeing, okay, how strong are they? Do they work well together? Do they tire at the same rate? Are they healthy? Can they, can they, uh, can they maintain their workload for years? What have they been doing? What have they been fed? This doesn't make any sense. And so after guy one and two, the servant, you know, is probably kind of questioning what's going on. Okay, it's like one, one is weird, two even stranger. Then it gets to the third guy who says, I can't, I just got married. Which is extremely rude. It's kind of just like saying, I can't come, I have, the woman, I have a woman in the back of the house. It's, it's like, it's a very, the veil kind of comes off here. And it's just pure bluster. And it's an insulting excuse. And so the servant just goes home. He's like, all right, something is happening here. Because you don't give these kind of bogus and transparent excuses at the last second unless you're trying to do one thing. And especially when this happens in unison, they're trying to discredit and humiliate the host. And leave him in the lurch. And they're trying to shut this banquet down. And I think the, the reaction of the, the host here becomes a lot more understandable when it's viewed in that context. It, especially since it's a, it's a culture of, of honor. Uh, where if your honor was impinged upon, like this, this was a huge deal. It, it makes a little bit more sense when we question these things. But I think the question, you know, is why? why? Why do they do this? And we kind of have to lift ourselves outside of the story a little bit for this. We have to lift ourselves out of, out of the allegory. It's very clear that, you know, what Jesus is talking about is God and the Pharisees, right? Uh, and why don't the Pharisees like Jesus? Why do they reject him? And I think it's because much like this story, Jesus does not fit their expectations. Much like this story, Jesus takes a left turn very quickly. 
in what they think a Messiah or a man of God should be. What does Jesus do? He challenges their authority. He breaks the rules. He's not a military leader. And he even loves Gentiles. And that point is made further apparent in this story because what happens after the first group of invitees doesn't come? Well, the host invites the people in the town, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. But then he says, go out into the countryside, invite the people out there. Within allegory, it's very clear that this is the Gentiles. Jesus is saying to them, oh, oh, you, you think you know what's going to happen here. First of all, you're not even going to be there. Second of all, you know who is? The Gentiles. Oof. That's not good. Jesus' existence to the Pharisees is basically an affront to everything they believe about themselves, about their standing before God, even to what they think God's character is. It's interesting because the Pharisees eventually set out to do just what the men in this story do, which is publicly humiliate and discredit, and they go even further to kill Jesus. They say, you can't have a Messiah without guests at the banquet, and you can't have a banquet if the Messiah is dead. You know, Jesus is almost issuing a warning here, wake-up call. Things are, and I think it's important to realize, you know, this is, things that are written in the gospel are not just written for the sake of recording them, right? Right. This is not just an episode where we're supposed to be like, ah, man, Jesus got him good this time, and move on. Why is this recorded? It's because it's relevant for us. Because this is a danger for us. These are written as a wake-up call for us. Because I think we're in danger of falling into the same trap that the Pharisees do here. And I don't think it's as explicit. I don't think it's as conscious or con- it's a, it's conscious of an effort here. But I think our expectations and our culture can kind of overlay our view of discipleship. Right. And overlay our view of Jesus with, without us even knowing. Because the Pharisees, in the end of the day, they didn't think they were rejecting the Messiah. They just thought he wasn't the Messiah because of the things that he said. This was not like, oh man, like we're totally going like, to stick it to God. They, they thought they were on the right side of things, but their expectations overlaid their ex- or what, what the Messiah was to them and what God was to them. I think for myself, I, I can do a really good job of, of fitting Jesus into a box. I think picking the things I like in the gospel and kind of tacitly and quietly putting the other things to a side. And I don't think my struggle is so much like, oh, I'm going out like living a wild life or anything and, you know, being two-faced in that way. But I have the things in the parts of discipleship that are comfortable to me and the other things that are not so much that I dip into every once in a while, but aren't, I don't make an effort to put them into my life all the time. You know, there are certain things I like, like reading my Bible, studying out the word, being a student of the word, getting really intellectual with the scriptures. I think I've proven that with all of this, that this stuff kind of excites me, you know, <laughs> getting a bit deeper in that way. But letting the word cut to my heart, letting it be a double-edged sword, being vulnerable with people, giving them my unprocessed emotions, not so much. Don't like that all the time. <laughs> a, little, a little scary. Love people. I'm on board with that. Absolutely. Let me be giving with the people that I'm comfortable with. The people, you know, the poor, the destitute, the people I'm not naturally comfortable with, well, maybe not so often. <laughs> maybe once in a while. And I, I think I was challenged on this recently uh, in the way that I love people and just like just wanting to do things that are comfortable, 
do things that I'm familiar with. And just getting frustrated when people don't respond to that. <laughs> when people don't respond to the way that I love them, and I can kind of back off and give up and be like, ah, I don't get it, you know. But that's not what we're called to in discipleship. I think I can also compartmentalize my discipleship when I do things. I'm like, oh, at a church event, Bible talk, you know, whatever. I'll be giving, I'll be, I'll be loving, I'll have my eyes kind of on the needs, but at work, no, 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 I need to concentrate. After work, ah, I need to relax, recharge, so tomorrow I can concentrate again. Uh-huh. And these things can be very segmented in my life, and there's parts where, of my life where I'm like, discipleship, and there's parts where that's not so much what I'm focused on. And I think within that framework, it's so easy to stop challenging myself and kind of default I uh, start to, by default, start to follow a Jesus of my own creation. And one that is in part biblical, but that another part is quite hollow. And I neuter Jesus of his full power and the full impact of discipleship. And it's also, it's so easy to let our culture be overlaid on top of our view of Jesus or on our hearts or the way that we view other people. This is a graph I... Uh, depicting the results of a survey where people were asked, regardless of their political party, how warmly do you, on a scale of zero to 100, view your own political party? Zero being like total abject hate, 100 being like total positive, warm and fuzzy emotions. They were also asked to rate, okay, well, how do you feel about the other political party? They asked this to Democrats, Republicans, independents alike, whatever. Uh, what do you think about people that you agree with? What do you think about people that you disagree with politically? The left half, you know, it starts in the 1980s. What we see is that it's very, it's pretty consistent what people think of their own political party. A little bit, you know, we can kind of read a little bit of a uh, decline in recent years, but above the 70 for the most part. The biggest thing about this graph, as you can see on the bottom, that is what people have said about the other political party. That number is on a steady decline, all right? That's now in the 25 range to getting to 20s. And I think we all can see, based on our culture, I don't think that's going to rebound anytime soon. We, this kind of just puts into, into hardcore data, like what, what I think anecdotally and experientially we all understand is that this country is being pulled into different directions. And it's, it's not even so much that we're being pulled in different directions as people, and this is an, from an article uh, by 538, uh, it talking about how increasingly so, people think that the other party is evil. And that goes for both sides. <laughs> Do we let our culture determine the way that we feel about people? Because if we think we're immune to this, we are wrong. <laughs> We are absolutely wrong. And I, I'm not here to say that like there aren't political ideologies or ideas that aren't dangerous. I think that there are. I'm not going to tell you what I think of those are right now. But I think that if we're responding to people as adversaries and with hate and when we are told who someone voted for or have a glimpse of a bumper sticker, we're jumping to judgments. Then we're impinging on our discipleship there. Regardless of what you believe in politics. And again, this is both sides. Are we succumbing to our culture or are we transcending it? And really, really think, I think this is something that we're going to need to continue to examine as this develops in our, cult, in our, in our country. You know, if someone 
told you who they voted for, and it wasn't who you voted for, how would that color your opinion of them? Would you treat them differently? Even at, like, you know, just the gut-level reaction uh, level. And, you know, I think our gut-level reactions are oftentimes what we're, how we were raised, the media that we ingest, but if we don't understand what those things are, we, we can't respond, <laughs> you know, uh, righteously afterwards. We have to recognize those things within ourselves. Are we transcending our culture or are we succumbing to it? Is the church a light or are we just reflective of everything else that's out there? Does our culture overlay our discipleship? And are we succumbing to our own expectations of Jesus or or are we embracing the real thing? Mm, Come on, Stephen. I think what's what's difficult about all of this is when I, when I really look and take a hard, hard look at myself and I think like all, all the ways that my expectations or, you know, my culture kind of overlays my discipleship, I can get a bit overwhelmed. Yeah. And when I look at all these shortcomings that I have, I, it, it, it tends to add up. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I can think, you know, like fixing all these things like, oh, I need to love this person, this person, this person. I, I need to, to share my faith more. I need to do this. I need to be constantly checking my bias and the way I'm viewing people. And that, that can just make me feel like I'm swimming upstream very quickly. And it can be very overwhelming. And I think initially when that happens, I can do, I can buckle down. And I'm like, all right, you know, I, I, I get convicted. I'll swim harder. I'll lean harder. I can do this. But a lot of times what happens when I do that is I just get exhausted. And I get discouraged by failure. I'm like, let me take Jesus out of this box. I'm going to embrace the full power of the gospel. I'm going to do this, this, and this. And then once hardship happens, and when I'm confronted with my own uh, deficiencies and weaknesses, I get hurt, I discourage, I get fearful, I put Jesus back in the box. (laughs) I'm like, let me just focus on the things that I know I can do. There's a reason that we put Jesus in a box. It's because taking him out is scary, and it's overwhelming, and it can come with failure and fear and discouragement. But that discouragement and fear, it's always going to be the end result. When I live my life and I read passages like this with my eyes fixed on myself. And I think in all all of what I just said, my focus is squarely on myself. It's what I can do with my own strength, what I can muster, the results that I can produce. But what's interesting is that's, that's not at all what this passage is about. It's interesting because the most powerful thing that happens in this passage actually isn't the sin. And it's not these men rejecting the host. I, I think that's the most immediate thing, and we can tend to focus on what comes first and last in a passage in Jewish culture. We actually need to focus on what happens in the middle. But also when we read the Bible focused on ourselves, we, we tend to miss the most powerful and impactful parts. And I think to really understand, you know, what's so powerful about this passage, we need to take a second and, and consider, again, what the host is going through. And imagine if you would, if you're getting married or, you know, imagine at, at your wedding if you've had one or imagine a wedding if you haven't had one, how much effort and time and planning it takes to put in uh, to get that event going, inviting people, uh, planning the venue, getting the food, getting the caterers on site, getting someone to, to, to make all the pieces fit together. It's an incredible amount of effort. Imagine on that day, 10 minutes before the ceremony, everyone texts you, I can't come. I have tickets to go see a movie. I have brunch plans. 
I uh, just bought a car and I need to go try it out. Like, how devastated would you be? And I think, like, forget even, like, the incredible amounts of money that are put into weddings and things like this. All that down the drain. Just, like, the, the idea that the people that you wanted to celebrate, just treating this, this sacred and holy event as something so flippant and just able to reject it at, at, at the drop of a hat. I would be devastated. It's interesting. When we consider it from that angle... The reaction of the host to get angry seems quite natural. I think I would struggle with some anger yes. at that point in, in the milieu of, of uh, emotions that I'm feeling. Right. But something crazy happens here. Because again, it's perfectly in the host's rights to take retribution. Be like, I'm going to equal the playing field. I'm going to put my weight on the other side of the scale. Uh, I'm going to take my justice to restore my honor. But it says here, the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And what happens here? His, the host's honor being destroyed and smudged and dirtied, he actually chooses to honor the people who are at the bottom of society. He says, okay, the social capital I have left, I'm just gonna give it away. Instead of restoring my own honor, I'm gonna honor those who have none. And he takes his anger and he turns it into grace. That's insane. Who does that? I don't, (laughs) not naturally. And it's incredible because this story isn't about a God who takes retribution. It's not about a retributive God. This story is about a God who takes his anger and reprocesses it into grace. It's about a God who's rejected and chooses to still embrace. And the point of the story is not, you know, shape up or ship out. It's crazy because when you look at the two groups, the ones who didn't come and the ones who did, The difference is not the amount of sin that they had. The difference is not the effort that they put in. Nobody put in any effort into here. There's a group that rejected the invitation and a group that did not. And you know what the difference probably was? Is that the group who accepted the invitation probably had a pretty good understanding of how lucky they were. Wasn't a thought in their mind of whether or not to come. They're like, oh my God, this guy, he's inviting me like I'm going to be there. He uses an interesting word for the people who are without. He says, make them come or compel them to come. Because, like, those people were probably very confused about why they were being offered this. There's probably a degree of, like, are you sure he wants me? But he's like, no, 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 I promise you, come to this banquet. And they did. And that's incredible. They came without question. We don't deserve to be here. And if we view the gospel through a self-centered lens and we're constantly worried about what it's going to cost us instead of focus on how costly the gospel is to God, we're going to fail. We're going to keep God at arm's length. But if we have our focus on the glory of God's offer to come to his kingdom, even though we're hopelessly sinful, even though we are absolutely spiritually destitute, my gosh, we are going to, we're going to run <laughs> to that 
banquet. You know, it, it, we have a God who's willing to invite us, even though we keep falling flat on our face. But this is going to become less about how do I shape up and more about how do I get closer to this God. If we do that, we've already shown up. You know, every, everything gets so much easier after that point. And all these struggles get so much easier. And again, this is going to be something that we're going to continue to fail at. But we have to keep coming back to this awe of the gospel and this awe of grace. You know, we're, if, if we can have our eyes set on Jesus in that way, we're going to let the word cut us more and more. We're going to be able to love people without fear because we're filling ourselves up with God. We're going to be able to transcend our culture rather than succumb to it. We're going to be able to treat people with love, patience, com- patience compassion, regardless of what they believe, regardless of what they look like, because we have a God who did that to us first. You know, church, we are so lucky to be here, yeah. to have a God who doesn't reject us based on performance, who actually opens his arms wider when he's insulted, who increases grace all the more when we run away. That's a God worth celebrating with. That's a God worth growing closer to every day without guilt of how much we fail, but with joy that we keep getting to get up yeah. and we keep getting to show up. That's a God worth taking out of the box and letting run rampant over our hearts. That's a God worth following and giving up everything for. Because we know, we actually know what nobody in this passage knew. And that was the cost of that invitation. And we know that the cost of justification, the cost that had to be paid to make the wrongs in the world right, wasn't the blood of the sinners. And it wasn't the blood of the people who had wronged everybody. It was the blood of the innocent. The cost of that justice and the cost of that banquet and the peace and and, and the restoration that's going to come was the blood of Jesus. And that was the cost. And that all the more should fill us with gratitude. That all the more should just convince us of the trustworthiness of this God of how lucky we are to be in his presence, how lucky we are to be able to go after these things with humility and with love. As we close out, let, let's remember to dwell on God's grace. Be in awe of it. We're, we're invited to the kingdom even though it cost God everything. His honor, his very son. And let's think about how incredible it is that, that we, the spiritually destitute, are able to be a part of this banquet and to dwell with God as his church forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Blue Ridge Podcast. My name is Will Portillo, and if you'd be interested in more resources like this or connecting with us, visit us online at blueridge.church or connect with us on Facebook at Blue Ridge Church of Christ. Visit us on YouTube and subscribe for weekly sermons, encouraging news, and short devotionals. Thanks for tuning in, and see you next time.